you know, we talk a lot about disruption. The significant driver of a lot of that disruption is technology. From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, this is Trending Jewish with Brian Schwartzman and my fabulous co-host, Rachel Burgess. Although, Rachel, you should be first. Alphabetical, right? Well, by be... first name, you it makes sense because it's Brian Schwartzman versus Rachel Burgess. Or is it by last name? Hmm. Maybe we'll alternate who goes first each time. Is that like shared billing? We could do that. It's a little bit of... E- Equality there. I like that. I then dig we'd, it. We'd have to remember what we did the previous time, though. Ooh. Well, that's why we have Sam here. Yes, that's. We'll add and, that. And Sam's shaking his head, going, "Don't worry, I got this." So. That's our our producer, Sam Walks. Sam, can you can you say hi? Hello. There. there. <laughs> he is the glue that binds us together. <laughs> right. So, and keeps us on track. <laughs> absolutely. Um. It's great, great to have you. Uh, great to have you with us as we we continue. It hasn't been every episode, but it's been an on uh, ongoing theme of ours, looking at Judaism and technology. And we're 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 back at it again. Is this uh, is this a miracle? A curse? Is it is it is it both? Um, does does Judaism tell us how to how to live online and comment on a Facebook thread? Um, I don't know. Did you? I, I thought this this interview went pretty well. What what do you think? I think it this article that um that we were talking about in this interview it's definitely a start to a very very rich conversation that will I think forever be present in our lives from this day forward. Short of a solar energy spurt that knocks out all technology and wipes out the inter- like the the electric grid. That is optimistic. Yeah, you watch a lot of doomsday preppers and you know where to store your pasta and you like know how to prepare. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of a that was actually a whole series actually about um what happens when the electric grid goes out and what happens to humanity. So, but this is this isn't I mean, I've definitely read We're some going post, in the other direction post today. Post-apocalyptic literature from Stephen King's The Stand to to Cormac McCarthy's The Road and every time I I, I always think how little skills I have to to survive in that kind of world. I mean, I can construct a sentence or ask a question, but I don't know. All right, so I could have this be a show about our favorite um, works of apocalyptic literature, but that's not why we're here. So let's get to the topic at hand, which is a fascinating one. Today we have the two authors of Harnessing Technology, which addresses many interesting ideas from how we can use technology for positive purposes and how we can remain in touch with our spiritual selves while engaging in social media. To talk about Harnessing Technology, we have two amazing guests in the studio today, one of whom needs absolutely no introduction, Rabbi Deborah Waxman, Ph.D., leader of the Reconstructionist Movement, president of Reconstructing Judaism, scholar, writer, and um, if you haven't checked it out, a really great uh, podcasting host, uh, Hashi Venu. If you've just uh, just listened to us, you, you probably, um, and Trending Jewish, you might want to check out uh, Hashi Venu podcast that's 
H-A-S-H-I-V-E-N-U, where, wherever podcasts are found. Um, and, and Rabbi Waxman also happens to be our boss, great boss. We also have Rabbi Nathan Kamazar, who just graduated from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in June and now is the associate rabbi at Society Hill Synagogue in Philadelphia, not far from the Delaware River. He was previously a lawyer who worked on technology issues in Silicon Valley. Welcome, Rabbi Deborah and Rabbi Nathan. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me and us. Before we really get into this this subject, I want to get into the to the framework of, of how and, and why this essay was was written. So I know it's part of the of the Evolve conversation project that Reconstructing Judaism is, is launching. It's it's a new project. So Rabbi Waxman, can you help explain to to our listeners what what this project is, what what we're what we're hoping to accomplish with it? Sure. Then uh, thanks for that question. One of the things that the Reconstructionist movement has always been known for is our uh, willingness to really engage forthrightly in the challenges and the opportunities that the modern world and the postmodern world now uh, present to us. And so one of the things that our organization, Reconstructing Judaism, we thought was really important was to, to facilitate and to further those conversations. We're doing this project in partnership with the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association. So we, we have a wonderful community of about 400 rabbis. Many of them are graduates from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. And we, we surveyed them and said, what are the most pressing conversations the most pressing questions that you think are facing Jews and the Jewish community in the 21st century. And we had some sense of what those topics might be. Um, and we really wanted to hear from the Reconstructionist rabbinate. What are the questions that they are asking? What are the conversations that they are having with the folks in their communities? Some of them are synagogue communities. Some of them are on college campuses. Some of them are in hospital settings. What are the things that keep welling up and that, that we they wanted us to dedicate the resources to diving into, to opening up, to offering up a Reconstructionist perspective? So they, um, we And we had some grant funding that we could apply to this, enough to invite dedicated reflective essays on seven different topics. Um, and so this was one of the topics. The others include um, why be Jewish, how to be Jewish in this time when we can construct our own identities, Israel-Palestine, race and racism, and what racial justice looks like in the Jewish community in the 21st century, building vital synagogue communities, New, new thoughts on tikkun olam and commitments to social justice, and then this one on technology. Now, I want to be forthright. We had a lot of things that came out like really clearly, powerfully that this is what Reconstructionist rabbis wanted us to be thinking about, and it was abundantly clear, you know, 70% all agreed we have to be talking about race and racism and racial justice. And then there were a whole bunch of topics that about 25, 30% thought these were important. So there was a plurality. There wasn't there wasn't a clear majority. And I will say that technology was one of them. Um, that a lot of people, a lot of people thought it was important, but not necessarily how we should be dedicating our resources. And I will share that we had to make a decision. What would the seventh topic be? And I felt incredibly strongly, so strongly that I volunteered myself as one of the writers. This is one of two essays that is is co-written. Um, that technology really had to be one because it, as you said, it is so pressing. It is so 
um, consuming. So what we've done with the, the entire project before we pull back to this particular um, topic is that each uh, topic, there a very thoughtful author, or in some instances, uh, more than one wrote a, wrote an essay, an extended essay. And we then um, had a very rich set of conversations with the members of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association, with some of the students who were studying to be Reconstructionist rabbis, kind of wrestling and taking it apart and pushing the conversation further. And we've captured those conversations, and we're using them as kind of almost like Gemara commentary on the Mishnah of the original text. So um, what we're aiming for is a conversation, sometimes face-to-face, um, frequently virtual, and also online. So some of the rabbinic comments are embedded around the original document. And now we're in the stage of bringing these these rich conversations already curated um, from uh, uh, across the essay and the rabbinic conversations out to the wider Reconstructionist community and the wider Jewish world. I mean, that's interesting. There definitely seemed something almost Mishnaic that you say it like that about the harnessing technology essay, which is which is at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org backslash harnessing technology. Um, but before I get, I, I, I'm finding it really striking that um, that it wasn't an overwhelming choice to to do this. And I'm and I'm, I'm Nathan, this could go to you too, but. Um, is it almost that it's it's so ubiquitous that that maybe some folks aren't aren't thinking about it and, and you know as this pressing issue because it's because it's everywhere like we're we're not we're not writing about Judaism in the automobile but an automobile defines you know so much of our lives you know in a way we we don't think about it. That's a really I love how you frame the question. I think it I think it sits at the intersection of ubiquity and ambivalence. That both it is everywhere, and then also, and people are, as you said, both reliant on it and resistant to it. So I think a part of it is, and I think, um, you know, we talk a lot. I talk a lot about disruption, and that you know, there's so many different sectors have been disrupted. So many different uh, the experience of of people's lives have been disrupted. Um, as the president of Reconstructing Judaism, I talk about how our organization sits at the intersection of so many different disrupted sectors from higher education to membership organizations to liberal religious expressions to to all kind to knowledge production like like the media and and book publishing and then also all the disruption going on in the Jewish world the significant driver of a lot of that disruption is technology i think a lot of rabbis uh, both feel tremendously Reliant on technology. I mean, t- preparing a sermon or researching a topic is completely different now than it was when I started rabbinical school 25 years ago. The way I'm, I'm heading onto the road uh, on Sunday and next Shabbat will be teaching and haven't finished my teaching, and I don't have to. I don't. I can. I can get on an airplane and not worry about not having all my books with me because I can get pretty much everything I need through Safari or through other online resources, whereas even 10 years ago, I would have had to make certain this was all done before I got in the airplane. So both, um, you know, we both use it, but we're also, I think, a little bit um, stymied at some of the more problematic or oppressive things, like if we are pastoring to people who have lost their jobs because of the level of disruption I was just talking about, or if we're just like everyone, every rabbi I know, every person I know is struggling with 
24-7 email all the time and how much that's disrupted a separation between work and leisure, which is a longstanding Jewish question about how to, what's the difference between Shabbat and restfulness and work. So I think it's both about the ubiquity and about the ambivalence. Is there anything you might add? No, I mean, I think it's such a great question about why about, you know, the smartphone, but not about the automobile. Um, but maybe the answer is maybe we should have written it about the automobile. Um, you know, it has immense like climate impacts. It made a tremendous change for how our earth survives. On the other hand, it also was a tool that united families who were living miles apart. So um, I think part of one of the virtues of Reconstructionism is that it loves to sort of look forward and look at the frontier and love to think about how do our ancestors' values inform our engagement with um, with the future and with the present, the rapidly changing present. So um, I think to, to me, when I think about technology nowadays, there's uh, we have the the, the video in the um, the annual report video of the uh, Reconstructionist Rabbinical College or the Re Reconstruction Judaism period is sort of this kind of sad but also accurate picture of these uh, people marching, staring down at their cell phones, not looking at each other. So to me, that's um, what sort of jumps out as one of the pressing questions. And again, it's not to say it, we 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 wouldn't have there wouldn't have been a harem against the automobile if the reconstructionist movement was writing on it back then and there's not a harem against the a harem a sort of excommunication ban on the smartphone but it is sort of like a, a clear-eyed look at um, are we approaching this as meaningfully as we can so again on the one hand a smartphone gives us access you know I can you know, in my in my podcast uh, on my way to school, be listening, be reading, you know, a history of racism in America. Um, or uh, on the other hand, I can be scrolling through it mindlessly, staring at memes, which can also be sort of an entertaining, rejuvenating thing. But it's just about being clear eyed with with this technology we're facing. So on the one hand, um, you're right. Like, why didn't we write it then? And what's different about today's technological world? On the other hand, it's just important to always be engaging with the cultural issues of our day. And that includes what the sort of what the technology, what the media is. So one of the things that struck me going back a little bit about something that you had said, um, Rabbi Boxman was talking about how you um, how your experiences being a rabbi were so much different than we're talking with um, Rabbi Nathan, who is um, just coming out, who's a fresh new rabbi. So here you write this great article, but you're coming at it from two different perspectives. How were you able to combine your voices together, having these two different experiences? I mean, just take one step back. I started rabbinical school 25 years ago, and I can't believe how different the world is and the Jewish world is. I wasn't going to out you. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> I, I, mean, I think about it all of the time. And and for sure, technology is is one piece of it, but also just, there's just so, it's such a different world. Um, it felt, this felt, a, well, I'll say a couple of things. One is that I, as someone who spends a lot of time explaining what is what is what does it mean to be a reconstructionist Jew what's a reconstructionist approach I actually think that dialogue is the best possible way that there's something about reconstructionism which tends toward a pretty intellectual take that it's most lively it's most interesting when you're actually doing it in conversation I, I mean what I say all of the time is the best possible way to understand what reconstructionism is is through demonstration and through immersion so go visit a reconstructionist congregation or go um, interact with a, a you know come to our convention or you know a, a regional gathering and have 
have a sense of really what it means to bring this to life. But separate from that, I think a kind of a dialogical model, a back and forth, I think really lends itself to the, you know, because what Reconstructionism is more than anything is a stance of brave curiosity, a stance of openness to like a, a deep reverence and appreciation for the inheritance that we've gotten and uh, uh, an openness and an excitement about what the world in front of us offers and presents and to to be involved in building it and in wrestling with it and in creating it. So this this piece in particular really began as a, an epistolary exchange. This began as we were writing each other emails back and forth. And um, I would love to have that to have um, been preserved because I, I think it was a really, really rich exchange. But it was too long. We really felt like it was too much and too long. And through the incredible skill of the editor and the director of the Evolve Project, Rabbi Jacob Staub, he actually spent a good chunk of time harmonizing our voices. So we were writing back and forth on the same themes, but he's the one who brought um, brought those exchanges into this harmonized piece. Yeah, it's true. We basically handed him a, a back and forth and said, here you go. Um, I mean, it starts with... It's uh, actually Jacob asked me to write a different piece, the Israel-Palestine piece, which I wanted no part of. So, um, so he instead asked uh, if, 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 or Deborah asked me if I would consider working with her on the technology piece. And one, I just really wanted the opportunity to contribute to Evolve and to work with Deborah. Um, and two, yeah, it, it, it to me it's such an important question because I'm working at a synagogue. I'm at Society Hill Synagogue, and if Again, to use the term clear-eyed, if we're not clear-eyed about people's behaviors today, um, which which do tend to be, you know, both my fiance and I check our phones. I happen, I whisper modani to myself, but then the very next thing I do is scan through my phone. And that goes from email to ESPN.com to Facebook, and she's on Instagram immediately. And that's just that's just what people do. There's so much attractive stuff on the internet that to kind of to not to be someone who's interested in engaging people with Judaism, which is both my career and to some extent my passion, uh, to sort of seed that space as like only secondarily relevant would just be to uh, ignore how human beings are today. Um, yeah, I do kind of think of myself as a digital native. I remember, I so the predecessor to AOL, to America Online, was Prodigy. And so I remember as like a nerdy like sixth grader, I guess this would have been in like 1995, I was on bulletin boards on Prodigy. I had decided at that point that I wanted to be a journalist. And so I was asking people on Prodigy, what are the best journalism colleges? Uh, a couple years later in an AOL.com chat room, I was signing up for my first you know, fantasy football league in 1997. Um, you know, then, then it was AOL Instant Messenger. And so I, I have sort of tried to, whether intentionally or just because it's in the water, sort of been surrounded by this stuff. And that's and sometimes they work there, they cycle back through. Like I remember my first cassette tape and I now cycled through to CDs, then iTunes, then Spotify, and now back to vinyl. So you see a lot of this kind of stuff happen. And so it was, I'm by no means an expert. I have no PhD. I worked as a lawyer in Silicon Valley for a little bit, but it certainly doesn't credential me in any, you know, other than anecdotally, but it just was a topic I was fascinated with. So there is a there are ton of quotes in this um, in the piece that really struck me. But one, um, you know, I wanted to I wanted to read it to you and ask if you could help us understand the, the questions you were you were exploring. Rather than simply being buffeted by the world we encounter, 
we can choose to take on intentional ways of understanding and acting that infuse our lives with holiness. That is that is so packed and rich with meaning. What is what is going on there and how does that relate to everything you just you just talked about? Sure. So um the 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 phrase that comes to mind right now is don't be the frog. And by that, I mean, you know, you think about like, uh, there's all, I don't even know where this came from. It's a really sad kind of gross story, but whatever. There's a frog that's in a pot of water. I guess this is how you cook frogs. And, you know, it starts out cool, but then it sort of like heats and heats and heats and eventually like kills the frog and it never jumps out because it doesn't notice until it's sort of the water has gotten too hot. And that's how I feel about technology today, is that it, is, it essentially creeps up on us if we're not kind of intentional about it, if we're not being thoughtful about, hmm, I am on my phone instead of talking to this Uber driver. I am, or instead of now that we have Uber Pool, talking to the three other passengers in, in the car. And so what, you know, our ancestors, the Torah was developed thousands of years ago at a time when there were not all these distractions. And to me, living as a modern or postmodern person, whatever we're calling it, is about having, the, and a postmodern Jew in particular, is having the humility to say, there are some stuff our ancestors got spiritually, emotionally, socially better than we do, or at the very least can, or at the very least their context can sort of inform this context. Um, a lot of that is about encounters with holiness, which I think um, that touches on. The, the Torah is basically a document about um, sort of interacting with holiness. And to me, bringing those values to today when we interact with with everything that's around us is that's what it means to be a Jew is to is to essentially be thoughtful about the opportunities for holiness in the mundane. I think that's exactly right. I, I think that one of the things that we agreed upon I, that this is some of what I think was stripped away a little bit in the effort to make it a shorter piece and that I think it gets kind of embedded into that kind of quote rather than discussed separately is that we, if, the, if, the, if there's a question of why be Jewish, uh, you know, Nathan just said as a postmodern Jew. And I think what you meant by that is like all of us today, if we're Jewish, we're choosing to be Jewish. It is so easy not to be Jewish and is so easy to just be shaped by consumer culture and by what television and increasingly Facebook and Instagram tells us we should be. So if we are going to, in a certain countercultural way, put out an identity that isn't uh, reflected everywhere and reinforced everywhere, um, then the answer is why? Is it is it just you know just to be countercultural? I, I don't think so. I mean, I am Jewish because being Jewish helps me to be a better human being, to be a better um, you know a better citizen of this planet. Uh, it's a very particular way of achieving those very universal goals. And I think the investigation of the commitment to the possibility of being filled up by holiness is one of the particular Jewish focuses and expressions that really moves me deeply and appeals to me. So we were so that then it became, if we agreed that we are we choose to be Jewish in order to be, the best possible versions of ourselves as individuals and in community and multiple communities, and that um, and if being Jewish is in part about this orientation toward the the luminous and the numinous in a world that is sometimes very very hard and harsh and dark, 
then it opens up a really interesting conversation about like, so what are the different ways to do it? And some of them are ancient practices like Moda Ani, which I do personally through an app on the phone. It's not the first thing I do. It's after my morning drink and and with my wife and we chant because mm. and um, uh, there's a wonderful app by our colleague Rabbi Shefa Gold with 49 different versions of, of Moda Ani. And so I like the variety. Um, but so so it becomes but then it becomes like there's there's lots of the, the ancient what some of some folks call the ancient spiritual technologies. And then there's just the the technology of the 21st century that could be harnessed and deployed toward this goal of holiness. You're saying I'm but I'm just thinking of being stuck on my phone or a screen in front of my face or social media. It's, it's wrecking. I feel like it's wrecking my attention span. It's getting it's getting me angry when I when I read stuff that that just seems seems off base like i mean i don't know why not just write all this what write all this off i mean if we if we could go you know sometimes it seems like there's little redeeming value and and i get the sense nathan in particular you you think that's a big mistake to hold that that kind of attitude right well i think there's two ways to answer that one is to as jewish leaders there's always the choice. Are we saying we need to just say to people, stop doing this, put this, put down your phones, um, don't intermarry? Or do we take a different approach, which is people are doing this, people are using their phones, people are intermarrying. Um, how can we be as uh, as Jewish as we can be in that context? So one answer to the question of like, what do we do with, can't, can't we just throw away technology? And it's like, even if we wanted to, other people aren't. And if we want to reach them, we sort of have to operate in that world. But, but you're right that I do think that uh, we'd be throwing too much of the baby out with the bathwater to say put down your put down your phones altogether. Um, again, I, I've sort of alluded to this, but you know, last night I was texting with friends around the country on on a Facebook thread about watching while watching the Sixers game. So we had the opportunity to interact around that. Um, really, really meaningful conversations happen about political events of the day. Sometimes the discourse gets bad, but I think that's where. That's where we step in is to try and um, lay out some rules for the road of how to of how to sort of apply Jewish wisdom to this contemporary context. But I, I do think there's enough redeeming there. You know, I mean, I mean, when when do you stop? Like, you know, our search engines, is there nothing? I think we've said that there's a ton you can do through that. There's to me, there's so much positive in in how we consume technology. It's like many other things. It's about uh, how do we do this thoughtfully and with a degree of moderation. A couple things. One is I, I'm looking around the room, and I'm the oldest person at 51. And um, and when I was reflecting on this, that when I was younger, I really resisted um, commitments to practice. So that had a lot to do with my relationship to halachic Judaism and the idea that oh, I'd have to daven every single day to say like a morning service, you know, morning prayers every single day. That just that seemed very oppressive to me. And I, what I'm finding is as I get older and older, I am more and more interested in practice and in um, in regimens because it helps me to be the person I want to be and to, to divide up my time in the day the way I want to, to spend my time so that I'm really doing what I want to do. So one thing is that like I, I have certain rules around my phone, which is which is so ubiquitous and I'm helpless without it. And I travel nonstop and the phone, tells me what time my plane is, gets me to the airport, gets me, you know, from the rental car to the, you know, to my next place. Like, and the phone died on me once at the end of a, I was on a, I think it was a 13 days. I was in eight different cities. And at the last city, the phone died. And having just been, you know, moving 
flawlessly through the first seven cities and then I was paralyzed in Chicago in the, and it froze because it was freezing cold which didn't help but um, but I try really hard not to pick up the phone right away when I wake up I mean I even as I use it as my alarm clock then to not look at the internet or, or my email um, until until later in the morning I, and sometimes I'm successful at it and sometimes I'm not um, and but but I so I try to have certain disciplines I I am not on my phone on Shabbat like for me um, it's not throw it out all the time don't use it at all but I need a time where I unplug and so while I might stream a movie on on Shabbos afternoon because that's what's something to do with my family and to um, to connect and to recharge but I try I'm not on email at all and as much as possible I'm not on the phone because the phone is not the phone anymore it's it's it, it connects me to the wider world but that said, so there are certain practices we use, and it's one of the reasons why we both crafted a kavanah, like an intention. Like, what would a mindful engagement be? Like, for, certainly my practice, like, I try not to check email before I go to bed because sometimes it stops me from sleeping. And I've actually been really, really disciplined about that. Like, what would mind, a mindful interaction with technology look like? So, you know, a kavanah, an intention, is a, it's a longstanding Jewish practice. So so for us to try to bring to speech what what might animate us and what, what might be helpful to us in terms of engaging in this work. We have a colleague, Rabbi Michael Strassfeld, who has set one limit that I am very sympathetic to, where he declared that it was kind of traith, it was not Jewish to comment in the blogosphere. Like when for example, the forward publishes an article about someone or something, and then there's a whole stream of comments, usually not curated and 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 often quite toxic. And he is and his assessment of that toxicity is that it can't be redeemed. You can't do anything about it, and therefore you shouldn't read them and you shouldn't contribute to them. And that's a really interesting line to draw. I mean, I as a that's my personal practice. I just find it them really. You know, I might read the New York Times comments because they're heavily curated and approved, but uncurated sections, as a general rule, I try not to read the comments. So my sense is that some of it, there's some line drawings. You know, so the same, certainly people do internet filters for porn or for, you know, and even if you watch porn, I think there's a consensus that you don't do that in an airplane or in a public space. You know, that there are, there are lines that we might draw, but they are um, distinct lines rather than global lines. So... One of the pieces that you bring up also is, um, or that you just brought up, was that um, those comments and the trolls and as as we call them, and one and also one of these pieces that you talk about in your article is um, treating people if they were made in God's image, and when we talk about image, um, that's something visual and seeing a face, and once you're out in the internet that face isn't there um and then you also talk a little bit about what does an emoji do or an emoticon which made me smile um and there was also a smiley face emoticon in the article as well so how important is a face how important is that to our relationships yeah i mean i, th I think that's that's in some ways the point of the article is to say remember the face you know because i think we're so quick to uh and i'm guilty of this you know the way Facebook threads work, you are you can type a little comment and hit return, and it's there instantaneously. And so I think 
the the urge here is to remember the other person's face, if this is going to be a particularly you know caustic remark, or you know I think about it also in the, in the work context with coworkers. You know, we kind of get into a mode of like, oh, we're inundated with emails, we have to fire him off so fast. Uh, it's okay to be really like curt and um, and you know just have a harsh period, which it can be. Um, and so I think the urge here is to try and remember that at the other end of this. Um, at the other end of this exchange is is a, a face, as you point out, um, and so the, and that that should guide us. And certainly, we're we're all guilty of not necessarily doing that all the time. But that's that's the goal. I, I think that that's exactly right. That's at the heart of it. If we had to sum it down, is remember that this is a tool, but the tool is ideally about connection rather than about disconnection or disembodiment. And I've been watching how, in my work life. We're using more Zoom more and more, and um, how transformative that is. Just to have it's 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 imperfect, but so much better than than just the writing or just the telephone or the uh, the the conference call, however however the technology works, and and it, so that it really just brings it to life. I think, and that's one of the things that we I think a lot of rabbis and certainly those of us here at Reconstructing Judaism that we're really thinking about is um, how to use the technology to amplify connection rather than to reinforce disconnection. And what is the best possible intersection between whatever virtual community uh, might get built up and and whatever face-to-face community that might support it. You know, one I think it's I think we talked about in the article and, and certainly I learned this while we were writing this piece that for like 12 step programs the online versions work just as well as the face to face versions they have the same level of effectiveness which is not as high as a lot of them like to claim but 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 there's no difference between the virtual version and the face to face version and i'm watching you know i know folks who do weight watchers and they still run face to face groups but most of the people who i know uh, do weight watchers and really like it they're doing it through an app and there's mutual support within there and so how to um you know, how to take seriously that virtual community, how to work against the trolls and the dehumanization, and how to marry it to what we know we are, we have evolved as human beings to be deeply connected and that we suffer. Uh, I was just listening to a radio show about uh, loneliness and, you know, how in England, they just appointed a minister of loneliness and, um, and how the pervasiveness of technology is both accelerating that and, and and also mitigating against it in certain ways. So, you know, I think that that's exactly what we're struggling with. You know, Judaism teaches that, you know, that the collective is non-negotiable. There are certain Jewish practices that are essential to our religious sensibility that cannot be done without a minion, that cannot be done without a quorum of at least 10 people showing up. And I, I do feel like that's an incredibly powerful um countercultural teaching in this radically individualistic society. So how to do that both separate from the technology or you know which is a I think a misnomer the technology because the sidur that we're praying from at those moments is a book is itself a form of technology but how to do that separate from the electronic moment the digital moment and how to do it through the digital moment. Yeah I mean I know I I probably came off sounding like a, a, a fuddy-duddy a bit or whatever, but but I mean, I've taken writing workshops with, with people from Hong Kong and uh, Western Africa and England and, and, and commented on each, on each other's work all, all in our own time. And it, 
you know, and it felt real. It felt like there was a real connection there and something that wouldn't happen otherwise. So I think that's just one of the, you know, one of the miracles you were you, you were bringing up in, in the way that that these technologies can, can bring us together. Um, one thing I'm curious, does, does, and tell me if I'm getting the, the, the description wrong, does, does the Jewish concept of sacred rebuke come into play in social media or other, other forms? And, and how do you go about thinking about that or doing it? Yeah, so I was I didn't discover the notion of tochacha, sacred rebuke, what you're talking about until until rabbinical school, and to me, um, it was so uh, bizarre and interesting. Like most of the um, you know sort of most of the moral interpersonal Jewish teachings are you know things I learned in kindergarten. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, you know, don't forget the stranger because you were a stranger. Uh, a bunch of things that are just kind of like intuitive to being a human being in the contemporary context. This notion of sacred rebuke is a notion that, um, first of all, that constructive feedback is essentially a commandment. Um, that if there's that if your heart's sort of like boiling up with something that uh, is is weighing you down because of something else that somebody did, that you should you should in all, in most contexts let that person know. Um, but uh, in a lot of times in the contemporary online world, we've sort of uh, forgotten the sacred part of the rebuke. And so we see a lot of, again, caustic back and forths on Facebook and really sort of dragging people into the mud based on their based on their beliefs, based on their framing of those beliefs, based on something even less, even more superficial than their beliefs. And so the idea of sacred rebuke is a set of principles to inform when and how one says to someone else, what you did caused me pain um, for the following reasons. And so I think the most the most obvious uh, example of how that should happen typically is instead of publicly, do it privately. You know, so there is so there's a whole, I guess you could say, treatise of Jewish wisdom on these um these sort of constructive critiques that feel essential to how we are if someone says something that, that causes us pain, but but at the same time not to just feel that that then merits any reaction whatsoever. That instead, in the online world, where as Rachel said, we're often forgetting sort of the other person's face to be particularly um, sort of sensitive to the notion that this is another person and that we should be really thoughtful even while we feel a need to quote-unquote rebuke them, that's the sort of traditional translation, uh, that we do so with the reminder that they too were created in the divine image and to follow some of the ancient Jewish principles around that. So one of the things that you actually go into your article about, and I think it also ties into the rebuke and how we treat each other, um, you talk about this in this article that it's memorialized. It lasts forever. Mm -hmm. um, once it's once it's in the internet, it, it lasts. And um one of the things that I thought about when I was reading that, I was actually thinking about actually your podcast, Deborah, about um, on Hashi Venu with um, Rabbi Fevi Mayer regarding Teshuva, um, which is the practice of reflecting and um, looking back at what you've done throughout the year, especially around high holidays, um, and trying to do better and try and seek forgiveness if you need to do that. Is that necessarily, is it necessarily a bad thing that all of our actions are being recorded forever so we can reflect on it? 
It's and so, be responsible for it. It's such a funny question, Rachel. I mean, it's so funny. Like we joke sometimes about the permanent record. You know, like the the image of the, the central image. I mean, ch- like chuva. It is important to say that one can do chuva at any point in the year, and that what part of what the high holidays do is invite us to mandate us to actually engage in this process of reflection. And one of the central images of the high holiday services is the Book of Life and the idea that everything is written down. And so you think about that that image, everything is written down and that God, the judge, is weighing, you know, who is worthy of more life. Now that's uh there's a long conversation to have about how challenging that theology is from a reconstructionist perspective. Um, but the metaphor is really, really powerful, but it's a metaphor. And if you think about it, it emerged when books were not ubiquitous, when it was not, I wouldn't say it was necessarily technology, that it was a uh, it was a very elite practice. And the people who were keeping records were the kings and the people in power. And even as Jews have always had a very high level of literacy, that didn't necessarily mean that they would have books of their own in their houses when that uh, idea emerged, but it was always it was always just a metaphor. And I've never thought that the permanent record of the internet age is, in fact, that that annal, and that we will be judged. I was just there was the, there's two or three public figures who have just been pushed out of their places of responsibility because of uh, blog posts or social media posts that have surfaced from a couple of years ago, one of whom is saying, no, no, I don't think I wrote that. And which is, no, there hasn't been a hack, but I don't think I wrote that. You know, like, so, and so there it is. I do think that there is a degree of accountability. Um, part of the challenge with the with some of the comments and the trolls is that they happen behind uh, handles or acronyms that, that divorce that kind of accountability. And I, I just in my personality and in my public figure, I am really pretty fine with that. Like, I'm not the kind of person who's likely to snap shots of myself or someone else in embarrassing positions. But um, I hadn't really thought about the rabbinic possibilities for teaching about tshuva from this. I'll give it some more thought in, in, in the next high holiday season. Well, no, it, yeah, it's funny that you went there because my mind went straight there when you brought up, you know, these some of these um, conversations have been ha- happening among sort of privacy advocates, you know, in the technology sphere for a while, which is, and, and some people lay out kind of the premise that you are, which is, first of all, doesn't, um, you know, a reduction of privacy, you know, incentivize us to be better or, um, or, uh, people who sort of say like, I don't think I have anything to hide. You know, the only, like if you have anything to hide, you know what? Maybe there's something problematic there. On the other hand, the notion of chuva, I think, about returning and about, I guess, I would say, second chances, is uh, about having not always being weighed down by by past choices in the eyes of of others. It's if um, you know if. You get a clean slate with Hashem. Uh, is it too much to ask to also try and get a clean slate with some of with some of your peers? And so, and the internet is sort of a this. You know, this is definitely going to be an issue for the next several years. You know, um, what if sort of someone developed a way to publicize every internet search you had ever conducted? Um, the other day, I did a Google search of myself because. I don't know, I'd like to, and I was applying for jobs and I, I thought it was worthwhile. And I, I the, a speeding ticket from when I was 16 came up. Um, and so on the one hand, it's like, uh, what's some prospective employer going to think about 
if because a 16 year old had a speaking ticket. On the other hand, like what's what's the value in that in that being out there? Um, and I could imagine it being the kind of thing where on a board, some people are sitting around and they say, do you see this right here? Um, and I've I've discovered some things about some colleagues um, searching them for sort of unrelated reasons. You know, I have to find their their work phone number or something like that. Uh, and you see sort of scan down some unflattering stuff about their past. And I'm not sure that if it's if it's not relevant to my sort of current interaction with them that I that I need to know that. Um, so it's not to say that it should never be out there and that we should have blanket rules to to um, when and when we don't sort of have people's pasts publicized. But I guess I want to be sensitive to, again, keeping the nature of their divine, um, them being created in the divine image. And what I worry about is that when someone's history is so sort of able to be brought up like that, um, that to the broader public, we are going to um, basically limit them to some specific deeds that come up in a, in a search as opposed to their, their full humanity. And, you know, I think we live in a society where we really have a tendency to do that, where we have a tendency to sort of decry other people's faults in part because it helps us feel better about ourselves when we have our own self-doubt. And so I guess because I'm worried about sometimes the mob mentality that comes out that way, I want to at least put a little bit of a finger on the scale of let's be cautious before we say all all previous electronic acts should be available in perpetuity. Also a good note to self, don't carpool with Nathan because he speeds. Uh, <laughs> at least in 1997, I think that's true. Um, that was funny. My my, my phone. Uh, I'll admit, my phone just dinged in the in the middle of uh, of Nathan was saying, and, and it was like I had to resist every uh, every impulse to, uh, to 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 check it. Like the like the brain's hardwired. But this this has been this has been great. Um, I think so much of what we've we've talked about is is relatable to millions and and and, and billions of peoples. And I think it's a you know a testament to the way you've approach this topic and and also just you know how much judaism and and reconstructionist judaism has to shed light on you know everyday issues we're facing so i think i wanted to close just by asking you you, you've put this out there in in you know as as a permanent record so so to speak what do you what do you hope happens with it or or that brings about in terms of discussions, comments, dialogue? It's a great question. I mean, for the entire Evolve project, what we're really hoping is both to continue and deepen uh, the conversations on, on these topics. I, I led a parlor meeting using just some excerpts from this essay in a congregational setting. And one takeaway that emerged was that they had had some very heated conversations on their congregational Facebook page about a controversial topic, and that the next time they would A, uh, set a kavanah, that they would B, put some ground rules down for how to have the conversations going forward, and that they would C, use some of the tochacha that was from one of Nathan's uh, postings, um, that they would use that in kind of monitoring monitoring the conversations going forward. Do you have thoughts? Yeah, I, I guess I would sort of point to two flip sides. The first being that 
in this technological age uh, that we not allow sort of the, the technology, the water to sort of heat too quickly on us, that we just be thoughtful, apply some of the principles we lay out in the topic, which are just, you know, co-opted from our ancestors, uh, apply it to the interactions we have online, that being the first one. And again, and that's not about uh, sort of throwing out the technology, but just sort of not letting it sneak up on us. And the, and the flip side, which we got into less in this particular conversation, but what are the ways that the that technology can allow our lives to be reinfused with Judaism that we've sort of gotten away from. So whether that's, you know, an app that dings at when it's time to daven or have a reflective moment, or, uh, you know, a, maybe it's a, a virtual mezuzah on the, the gates you're going through, i.e. the new websites you're going through that says you're leaving one place, entering another, here is God. Proceed, you know, so uh, just to to start to get inventive about how can we apply um, our, our ancient Jewish wisdoms in new in new media that allows us to infuse the mundane with holiness. Wow, this is uh, this has been amazing. Um, so we, we encourage you check out check out the article. You can find it at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. Um, anywhere you can. Uh, Download podcasts, search uh, Hashivenu, an, an amazing uh, podcast hosted by by Rabbi Waxman, really uh, about how Judaism you can use and how Judaism can 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 help you live your life and meet life's challenges. If you're uh, if since I'm going, if you're in uh, in in Philadelphia, why and uh, on the Shabbat, why not uh, stop in and uh, Society Hill Synagogue, amazing historic. Uh, Congregation uh, um, where uh, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Kamazar is one of the uh, spiritual leaders. So thank you, thank you so much. I'm 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 looking forward to listening to this uh, listening to this again and really uh, really digesting it. It was a great uh, great conversation. And I know that there's um, also a whole bunch of other topics in here. That this was such a rich article, and there was a bunch of things I know that. Uh, could not be discussed um, in this article. And so I'm looking forward to seeing where this conversation goes from here and what the future of the relationship between technology and Judaism looks like. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And you can also check out our website with other resources as well at trendingjewish.fireside.fm. We should also mention that we have rolled out Evolve. Evolve is a project launched by Reconstructing Judaism with incredible essays and conversations from rabbis and thought leaders about urgent issues impacting the Jewish world today. And you can check out Evolve and read these essays, participate in these conversations by going to evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. If you want to send us a message, ask us a question, suggest uh, an idea, tell us how great we are, um, go through go through the website and uh, use the contact us form, and uh, we will we will gladly uh, hear from you and get back to you. And you can also follow us on Facebook as well. And also a note to make sure that you read Deborah and Nathan's Kavanah before sending comments, so we can still continue to have some holy conversation.